When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, exposing the fallen realm and the plot to ignite the final war of the ages. There are two parallel stories. One is the sin of Shemiyaza, who's described as the chief of the Watchers, who descended among this group of 200 to the summit of Mount Hermon. He led them in this sin of defiling themselves with human women, this crossing the species barrier, if you will. The other is the sin of Azael, or Azazel, who was responsible for teaching us forbidden knowledge. Humanity was taught things that we weren't supposed to know. Sorcery, uh, the making of weapons, and you know, trying to divine the future by the position of the stars, things like that. You can become an official Patreon supporter of my work here at Strange Planet Productions by donating a monthly amount through patreon.com forward slash strange planet, patreon.com forward slash strange planet. There are several tiers to choose from. Pick which one is right for you, but any monthly amount is greatly appreciated. As a sign of my appreciation, you can have your name mentioned on air during my weekly radio show, or you could have your name included in a crawl on my YouTube channel live stream. You could also receive episodes of my old podcast, The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone. This critically acclaimed podcast, produced in partnership with Chris Jericho, is not currently available anywhere else. If you enjoy this podcast or my weekly radio program, The Conspiracy Show, you can really get behind me and my work by donating once a month at patreon.com forward slash strange planet patreon.com forward slash strange planet conspiracy unlimited with richard serrett pursuing the truth wherever it leads exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Friday. Author broadcaster Derek Gilbert is standing by to discuss his new book, co-authored with his wife Sharon, Giants, Gods, and Dragons. He's about to reveal the identities of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the dragons who will walk the earth in the last days, the name of the first spirit to rebel against God, and no, it wasn't Lucifer, and the link between the fallen angels of Genesis and the titans of Greek mythology. Derek hosts Skywatch TV, a weekly discussion on prophecy, discoveries, and the supernatural, and co-hosts Sci Friday, 
a weekly television program that looks at science news with his wife, co-author and analyst Sharon K. Gilbert. Derek is the author of the groundbreaking books The Great Inception and The Last Clash of the Titans. He's also the co-author with Josh Peck of a book about the occult origins of the modern UFO phenomenon, The Day the Earth Stands Still. His latest book, co-authored with wife Sharon, is Giants, Gods, and Dragons. Hey, Derek, welcome back to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? I'm doing well. It's an honor to be here. Thank you very much. Beautiful book, Giants, Gods, and Dragons. Although the character on the front, a little ominous, is that what we think he looks like? Satan? Well, um, that would be more a representation of the uh, giants of the pre-flood era. But ah. of course, we're taking some artistic license. Our uh, the, the artist who does our covers, uh, Jeffrey Martis, is a genius. And uh, so we, uh, we, we give him a lot of latitude, and he usually comes up with designs that uh, attract the eye. And it's not by coincidence that we uh, came up with a title that uh, probably appeals to people outside of the typical Christian uh, book-buying audience. How can you pass by a book that says Giants, Gods, and Dragons and just keep walking? It's captivating. <laughs> but, but then the Bible is. It's filled with murder and mayhem and history, and it's all in there. Well, that's what really inspired the title and inspired the book. Um, the germ of it was, of course, the COVID pandemic. Uh, as I mentioned before we uh, began the program, uh, my wife and co-author, Sharon K. Gilbert, has a degree in molecular biology with an emphasis in uh, genetics. So, And she went back to school as an adult student, graduated with honors, which means she actually paid attention and studied, unlike me when I was in college. Um, she understands what's going on. And our publisher, Tom Horn, asked if she would write a book on um, the the connection between the pandemic and uh, Bible prophecy. She did that previously back in 2014 with the book Ebola and the Fourth Horseman of the Apocalypse. But wanting to make it more of an evergreen book, we started uh, looking at ways we could, uh, you know, broaden the scope of the the book. And then I noticed a story about uh, protest by players of the game Dungeons and Dragons who were upset at the way the orcs were depicted <laughs> because. <laughs> The orcs are, you know, in, in J.R.R. Tolkien's world, and of course, Tolkien kind of created the genre mm -hmm. of fantasy fiction, the orcs were, were evil. They were inherently evil. They had been twisted by the dark god uh, uh, Melkor or Morgoth into being these, these creatures that uh, just don't have any good left in them. They're violent, they're brutal, they're cannibalistic. They, there are not people you would want living down the street. But... It's assumed in 21st century West in the 21st century Western world that they must be evil because their skin color is different from that of the elves, because the elves are typically depicted as enlightened and artistic and cultured and so forth. And so, the creators of the game, Wizards of the Coast, said, "All right, we will address this in future iterations of the game. You can uh, play the the game as an orc and be a good orc if you so desire." All right, fine. <laughs> now it's easy to laugh at. Uh, the people playing the game and say, you know, they're missing the point of the plot because they don't understand the context of the world of J.R.R. Tolkien, who created the genre. But then it struck me that as a Bible-believing Christian, um, most of us who call ourselves by that, who identify ourselves that way in America uh, and in the West, don't actually believe that most of the characters in the Bible 
are real. Mm, Even though we profess to believe in this book called the Bible, which we claim is, you know, say is the word of God, we treat most of the characters in it as fictional. So we can laugh at the uh, Dungeons and Dragons players for treating these fictional characters as though they're real and protesting on their behalf, while we are at the same time claiming to follow the word of God, but treating most of the real characters in it as fiction. And those characters include giants, gods, and dragons. Right. So let's talk about giants. Uh, and in Genesis, Genesis 6, 4, it says there were giants in the earth in those days and also after that. But the idea of the giants existing pre-flood and then supposedly they would have been wiped out during the flood, but then they're back, right? And that's always perplexed me and I'm sure many other people. How did how was it that the giants survived the flood? Well, there are a couple of answers to that. First of all is the possibility that they did not. And that's something we addressed in the book that uh, later when David and his men, for example, encounter Goliath and his buddies from the Philistine city of Gath or they uh, Joshua and uh, the Israelites during the conquest of Canaan really target their, their, their strategy at wiping out the Anakim when they crossed the Jordan River. If you read Joshua, the book of Joshua carefully, it was really addressed at uh, uh, wiping out these tribes called Anakim, which were counted as Rephaim. Now, first thing to understand is the term Rephaim in the Bible essentially applies to living tribes in the days of Moses and Joshua, but later on becomes a term for the spirits of those Nephilim, those giants from the pre-flood era destroyed in the flood. But the Anakim, and uh, when they send the spies up in, in Numbers chapter 13, they spend the, the send the, the spies into Canaan from the south, and they come to the city of Hebron, where uh, the descendants of Anak resided. The term, and we, we discovered this in, well, we didn't discover it, but we, we, we read a lot of research by people who can actually read the original languages and who've done the research. We're just trying to piece it together. Uh, that the, the term descendants of, used in Numbers 13, and then also used in 2 Samuel as descendants of the giant, of the uh, Goliath and his brothers that were defeated by David and his men, uh, does not mean literal blood descendant. The term yeladeh, rather than ben, which means son of. Yeladeh really means uh, born in the house of or servant of, like uh, house servants of Abraham that went with him to recover his nephew Lot from the kings of the east. They would be his Yeladeh, his servants. They were in the house of Abraham, but they were not Abraham's literal genetic descendants. So our conclusion was, and this is based on the research of actual scholars, that uh, these descendants of Anak were not literal blood descendants of some guy, some giant named Anak, hence the Anakim, but uh, they were, uh, the term Anak comes from actually a proto-Greek word, which means high king. Uh, for example, in the story of the Trojan War, uh, written by Homer, the high king of the Greeks attacking Troy, Agamemnon, was the Anak. He was the high king. Uh, so these Anakim were essentially a warrior class possibly of Greek origin, like the Philistines. And uh, that was that was their term. We also know since they were counted as Rephaim, and we went into this in our book, Veneration, that they likely venerated or worshipped the uh, spirits, these demonic spirits of the Nephilim. Uh, the same held true with Goliath and his buddies, the descendants of Rapha, descendants of the giant. They were Yeladeh Rapha, in other words, servants of or devoted to it was essentially a warrior cult. So that is one possible answer. They weren't really giants afterward. There were just these warrior cults that worshipped 
the pre-flood mighty men who were of old. Now, the second possibility is that, yes, there were additional giants in the land, and that's possible. I mean, Goliath was a pretty big dude, according to the Bible. And uh, Dr. Michael Heiser has offered an explanation, and this is when... um, in Genesis chapter 6, we read that uh, the sons of God went into the daughters of men, um, and the giants were in the land when the sons of God went into the daughters of men. And Mike points out that the Hebrew word translated when can also mean whenever. So there may have been additional incursions after the flood. Ah, so you okay, get that makes possible sense. explanations there. Yeah. Makes sense. All right. So the fallen angels. Do we know whether they took the daughters of men by force, whether there was some sort of an agreement perhaps with the fathers of these daughters, an exchange of knowledge, technology perhaps? What happened, do you think? Genesis 6 doesn't give us a whole lot of information. The way it's worded seems to imply that they took these women by force. But when you read into some of the uh, extra biblical literature that was familiar to the, uh, the apostles, because it was uh, popular during the Second Temple period, that's between the time of the Jewish return from Babylon and the Roman destruction of the Temple in the year 70 AD. Uh, books like the Book of Enoch and and others, it it does seem to indicate that there was a quid pro quo. Uh, in fact, uh, the angels are criticized for allowing women to uh, tempt them and to defile them. So it does appear that there was a... Uh, a desire on the part of humans uh, in the pre-flood world to exchange physical favors for secret knowledge. And when you read the book of Enoch, uh, scholars who've uh, really studied it say that there's apparently in the early chapters, what they call the book of giants, which is like the first 35, 36 chapters of first Enoch, that uh, there are two parallel stories. One is the uh, the sin of Shemiyaza, who's described as the chief of the watchers, chief of the sons of God, who descended with this among this group of two hundred to the summit of Mount Hermon, uh, he led them in this uh, sin of defiling themselves with human women. This uh, crossing the species barrier, if you will. The other is the sin of Azael or Azazel, who was responsible for teaching us forbidden knowledge. Humanity was taught things that we weren't supposed to know: sorcery, uh, the making of weapons, and and so forth. For, uh, you know, trying to divine the future by the position of the stars, things like that. So those were the two main sins that uh, these fallen angels brought to humanity in the pre-flood world. And uh, Dr. Michael Heiser in his book, uh, Reversing Hermon, does an excellent job of showing how that understanding of the impact of the Watcher's Rebellion uh, influenced biblical theology because it shows up in a number of places in the New Testament. So Mount Hermon is really, that's ground zero. That is where the fallen angels first came down to earth, gathered, conspired? Yes, according to the Book of Enoch. And uh, interestingly, this is, uh, it's circumstantial evidence because of the number of years between the time that this particular piece of evidence was created and uh, the pre-flood world. But in 1869, a a British explorer, uh, engineer, uh, archaeologist by the name of Sir Charles Warren, who was also uh, instrumental in finding the uh, the Moabite stone, which helped us untangle biblical Hebrew, uh, climbed to the summit of Mount Hermon. This was in September of 1869, and he found inside a temple on the summit of Mount Hermon, uh, which, by the way, is the highest man-made place of worship on planet Earth to this day. It's about 9,200 feet elevation. Uh, very close to a UN observation post, by the way. 
very interesting. Uh, mm. He found a, a stela, which is an, an inscribed piece of limestone that weighed about 6,000 pounds at the time, about four feet high, 18 inches deep, 12 inches wide, and in archaic Greek is ins was inscribed the words, by the order of the Most High and Holy God, those who swore an oath proceed from here. Now, scholars of Enochic literature, like uh, George W.E. Nicholsburg, who's a professor emeritus from the University of Iowa, concluded that, yes, this refers to that incident on Mount Hermon. Now, the fact that it was inscribed in Greek means it's probably not older than the time of Alexander the Great, which would be late 4th century B.C. And, right. of course, if you're looking at the pre-flood world, you're talking thousands of years between the the rebellion and the ins inscription on this stone. But... Uh, it's interesting that this belief was maintained by the pagan world for so many years and that somebody cared enough about this to lug a three-ton chunk of limestone up 9,000-foot mountain mm. <laughs> that you can only get to in late summer because it's usually snow-covered. Uh, Warren, by the way, brought that stone down the mountain, managed to shave it down to like four inches thick, got it down the mountain with the permission of the, uh, the Ottoman governor in Damascus and took it back to the British Museum where it exists to this day. Now, interestingly enough, less than 20 years later, Warren was the superintendent of Metropolitan Police, Scotland Yard, in London, at the time of the Jack the Ripper murders. Oh, my word. So there's what an you... odd connection between the Watchers, Mount Hermon, and Jack the Ripper. And do you want to, I mean, do you delve into what that connection is, or do you just kind of leave it there? Well, we can only speculate. I mean, the official story is that it wasn't unboxed and translated until 1903 by a French uh, archaeologist by the name of uh, Charles uh, Clermont Ganot, who worked with Warren in getting the Moabite stone back to uh, back to England. Um, apparently, Clermont Ganot opened it uh, some years earlier, but he didn't know where it had come from or where. It, and it was only he stumbled on uh, Warren's report in an old edition of the Palestine Exploration Fund quarterly. Uh, from 1870 and it's like oh okay that's that stone so now Sharon who in addition to being my co-author on this uh, this nonfiction stuff that I, I like to write she's in the middle of a series called the Red Wing Saga which is set in Victorian England and begins with the Jack the Ripper murders which is how she stumbled onto this piece of historical information so in her series her second book of this series which now has got seven novels in it uh, begins with the unboxing of this stone from Mount Hermon and something getting out which then leads to the Ripper murders but uh, again that's uh, a, a, an interesting plot device for a uh, series of supernatural fiction. I'll say. We can only speculate. We can only speculate. It has long been rumored or suggested that um, Mount Hermon in Israel and Roswell, New Mexico, where supposedly a, a UFO crashed back in 47, that they are on the same parallel, the 33rd parallel north. Is 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 there any truth to that? And, and if so, what do you think? Is that just a coincidence? Is there a connection? A, the, the late David Flynn, who was a really incredible and insightful researcher, wrote an article about this, and I think it's going back more than 12, 13 years now. Uh, we interviewed him before he passed on this, but uh, yeah, the, the occult significance, the occult signature of the Roswell crash, and he connects the uh, longitude, uh, the, uh, the latitude, rather, of Mount Hermon and Roswell um, but boy, it's been so long since we've talked to David, and I hate to misrepresent his work, but if you search online, you can find it. David Flynn um, and the occult significance of the Roswell crash, he does connect the uh, 
the location of Mount Hermon and uh, Roswell. And so there were 200 fallen angels, I guess, that gathered at Mount Hermon or that came down. Uh, you mentioned a couple other names and something that you point out in the book that I didn't know, and that is that Lucifer was not the first spirit to rebel against God. Yeah, and that's that's interesting. And in fact, I'm working on uh, another book now that di- delves a little bit deeper into that. But uh, um, yeah, we we in fact we've got another one coming that'll look specifically at this this first rebel. Um, in Genesis one verse two, we're, we're told that uh, the spirit of God hovers over the deep, and uh, the deep in in Hebrew is essentially a cognate, uh, same word, different language for the Sumerian word. Tiamat. Um, in, in Hebrew, the word is tehom. And Tiamat was the primordial chaos monster or chaos dragon that had to be subdued by a warrior god. And depending on who was telling the story, it was either Marduk or Enlil or Anu or Ninurta or Tishpak. I mean, there was a number of different variations on that story. Uh, the Canaanites knew it as the battle between Baal and the sea god, Yam. But in the Bible, it's Yahweh the God of the Bible and Leviathan. And interestingly enough, this uh, entity, this chaos dragon or chaos monster that had to be defeated was usually described as uh, being a seven headed dragon, which if, if anyone's familiar with the uh, the book of revelation, the idea of a seven headed dragon should be very familiar. The fact is that it was a very old idea in Mesopotamia when John wrote the book of revelation. I want to talk about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. We know them by color, you know, the pale horsemen and so forth, but you've actually given them identities. Right. Um, this was based on research that Sharon did some years ago. In fact, it was for the uh, the book I previously mentioned, Ebola and the Fourth Horseman of the Apocalypse. She pointed out in a presentation that she gave based on uh, that book that the Fourth Horseman, Death, in Greek was Thanatos, which was a known entity, the death god. Uh, and of course, he's accompanied by Hades, who was likewise a a known entity in the Greek pantheon. So we began to wonder as we were going through our ongoing weekly video series, um, Unraveling Revelation, who might the other three writers be? If John knew that his Greek-speaking readers would be familiar with Thanatos and Hades, who were the others? I mean, who did God reveal to John as these other entities? So we we looked at the rider on the white horse, and there's been some debate over the centuries as to whether or not this is uh, Jesus, because later, Revelation 19, he appears on a white horse. But the difference is the crown. Uh, there are two different types of crowns that are described in the book of Revelation. One is the uh, diadem, which is a crown of royalty, and that's what the writer in Revelation 19 wears. That is the Messiah. In Revelation 6, the first writer of the apocalypse is wearing a, a, a Stephanos, that is a crown of victory. Uh, that is a crown of laurel leaves that was given to winners or victors in athletic competitions at the Olympic Games. It was later adopted by the uh, by the emperors of Rome as uh, sort of a symbol. Uh, Roman generals would wear it when they returned from a victorious campaign. Uh, but interestingly, in Greek mythology, the uh, the creator of the Stephanos, the crown of victory, was Apollo, the Greek god Apollo, um, who was uh, like the rider on the white horse, an archer. And according to Revelation 6, his uh, bow was described in, in Greek as a toxon. That is the word from which we get the uh, modern English word toxic or toxicity. In addition to being a, a warrior god who used his bow in battle, Apollo was the plague god, and that was how he spread his plague. 
This uh, connects to earlier entities. In Canaan, this entity was known as Reshef. In, in Babylon, he was called Nergal. Um, but uh, we, we argue that because of the symbolism there that was adopted by the Roman uh, Empire, specifically the Roman um, emperors, uh, in particular uh, Caesar Augustus, uh, Nero, even the Emperor Constantine, who is considered the first Christian emperor, he legalized the faith in the Roman Empire. Uh, prior to his death, he established a uh, he had a, a bust for himself that was erected in uh, uh, Constantinople. Uh, he's gone now; just the pillar remains. But uh, depicting him as Apollo, uh, we argue that uh, the conquest of the rider on the white horse, as he goes forth conquering and to conquer, is not war, but uh, in winning over essentially the Western world, the uh, culture of the West, of Europe, North America, essentially based on Greco-Roman literature, uh, philosophy, law, art. Um, you look at all of our gov government buildings in the Western world, and they all look like pagan temples from ancient Greece and Rome. And that's not by coincidence, we argue. Right, right. The city of Washington, D.C., commissioned by Thomas Jefferson, the same. Mm -hmm. A lot of pagan symbolism in, in our nominally Christian Western world that we Christians don't recognize. The rider on the red horse was pretty easy to identify as the war god, um, but uh, rather than Ares and Mars, we named him as, according to the name that uh, Jews would have been familiar with in the first century, and that's the national god of Moab, Chemosh, who uh, later the Greeks identified, oh yeah, okay, that's Ares, that's, uh, we, we know who that is. Uh, very old deity, he was worshipped in uh, northern Syria, uh, according to texts that archaeologists have found uh, 2,500 years before John wrote the book of Revelation. The rider on the black horse was a little trickier, but uh, I think we've got that one. And there's some really, really interesting things that uh, seem to fit what we're going through right now economically. More of my conversation with Derek Gilbert when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. An official message from Medicare. A new law is helping me save more money on prescription drug costs. Maybe you can save too. With Medicare's Extra Help program, my premium is zero and my out-of-pocket costs are low. Who should apply? Single people making less than $23,000 a year or married couples who make less than $31,000 a year. Even if you don't think you qualify, it pays to find out. Go to ssa.gov slash extra help. Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. An official message from Medicare. A new law is helping me save more money on prescription drug costs. Maybe you can save too. With Medicare's Extra Help program, my premium is zero and my out-of-pocket costs are low. Who should apply? Single people making less than $23,000 a year or married couples who make less than $31,000 a year. Even if you don't think you qualify, it pays to find out. Go to ssa.gov slash extra help. Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. An official message from Medicare. A new law is helping me save more money on prescription drug costs. Maybe you can save too. With Medicare's Extra Help program, my premium is zero and my out-of-pocket costs are low. Who should apply? Single people making less than $23,000 a year or married couples who make less than $31,000 a year. Even if you don't think you qualify, it pays to find out. Go to ssa.gov slash extra help. Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. C60 Evo delivers the miracle molecule 
ESS60. It's pure carbon 60. Why not love your body and share C60 Evo with those you love? ESS60 from C60 Evo is a mega antioxidant for increased strength, endurance, flexibility, and a deeper sleep. It's great for pets too. I take a tablespoon every day and so does the mighty Aphrodite. We're both sleeping better than we have in years. And during the day, we have such tremendous energy and vitality. We're both pain-free. In a landmark peer-reviewed animal study in Paris, France, rats fed ESS60 lived twice their normal lifespan. Go to c60evo.com slash Richard hyphen or click on the C60Evo link in the episode notes. Use the code EVRS at checkout and save 10%. ESS60 from C60Evo. Order your miracle in a bottle today. The truth goes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Then, it is violently opposed. Finally, it is accepted as self-evident. Let me just read that again. I don't know what that means. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Derek Gilbert is here, and we're talking about the end of days and the historic and prophetic links between the Watchers, Mount Hermon, and more. What is the actual link between the fallen angels of Genesis and the titans of Greek mythology when it talks about the men of renown? Is that who they were referring to, the titans? The men of renown would be their offspring, the, the Nephilim, the giants of, uh, of the ancient world. Uh, the titans we equate with the watchers themselves, or as they're described in Genesis 6, the sons of God. It, it, that's not the typical understanding of most pastors coming out of seminary today. They're trained to... Uh, understand the sons of God as the righteous sons of uh, Seth, the son of Adam and Eve. But that really twists the Hebrew into something that Hebrew speakers wouldn't recognize. That phrase, B'nai Ha'elohim, um, always in the Old Testament refers to supernatural entities. And that's clearly how the early Christian church understood it. When you read the writings of the early church fathers for the first 400 years after the resurrection, they universally understood that the giants of the ancient world, the giants of the pre-flood world, were the children of these fallen angels who crossed the species barrier and took uh, took wives of all they chose. Now, according to Enoch and according to Peter, 2 Peter 2, verse 4, that uh, these angels, when they sinned, were uh, punished by being thrust down to the underworld. The book of Enoch describes them as uh, burning mountains in the underworld. Peter says they were thrust down to Hell is what most of our English Bibles say, but uh, the word in Greek is Tartarau, which literally means they were thrust down to Tartarus. Now, there's a difference between Tartarus and Hades. Peter would have known this. He was living in a world that had been dominated by Greek culture for at least 300 years by that point. And uh, as a Christian, I believe that he was inspired to write by the Holy Spirit. So I under- believe that he wrote, it chose the word Tartarau deliberately. It's the only place in the Bible where that particular word is used. There are only one that, so we know that there is a group of entities that are in Tartarus as opposed to Hades. Uh, in the Greek mind, Greek religion, Tartarus was as far below Hades as the earth was below heaven. So this was a special place reserved for supernatural threats to the divine order. And uh, these would be the same entities that uh, Jesus proclaimed to, the prisoners that Jesus proclaimed to in 1 Peter 3, uh, beginning of verse 19. Um, the ones who sinned in the days of Noah. When you read 2 Peter 2, you see that those angels who sinned in context 
committed a sexual sin. Jude, likewise, in Jude verses 6 and 7 in his short epistle, describes the angels who sinned, who are in chains in gloomy darkness until the judgment. And again, in the context of what Jude is writing, it's clear that the sin of these angels was a sexual sin. Well, the only place in the Bible where we see that kind of thing happening is in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. So we know that the pagans believed that there were a group of supernatural entities confined to Tartarus. The Bible says there's a group. It makes sense to conclude that that's the same group. So the sons of God from Genesis 6 are the titans of Greek mythology. Now, what's interesting, and Sharon and I only stumbled on this as we were writing this book, that in Revelation 9, we're told that there's a group of supernatural entities that come out of the abyss. Uh, Revelation 9, beginning at verse 1, there's a, an angel who's given a key and he unlocks the, uh, the, key, the abyss and these things that look like locusts and they're, they're really nasty and they fly out and torment humanity, all who don't have the seal of God on their foreheads for five months. This has been interpreted by uh, prophecy students for, for years as, uh, well, that must have been John seeing something like attack helicopters or something like that. We or tend to drones. <laughs> drones, maybe. Right. Yeah. But if they're coming out of the abyss, we know that there are supernatural entities in the abyss. And when we go back to Genesis chapter 8, which describes the flood of Noah and the impact of the flood of Noah, what happened in the flood? All flesh on earth was destroyed, which include the, included these hybrid children of these fallen angels and human women. And the number of days that the ark was on the water before it came to rest was 150. Now, that's not normally a biblical number. We see certain we, we see certain numbers repeated often throughout the Bible, you know, 10, 40, 70, and so on. 150 is a little odd. But when you realize that in a 30-day lunar calendar, which is how they kept time back in the day, that is exactly five months. Mm-hmm. So Noah and the ark on the water for five months while the children of the Titans, children of the Watchers, children of the sons of God are being destroyed in the flood of Noah, and at the end of days, during the great tribulation, the abyss opens, these things come out, and they get five months to torment humanity, those without the seal of God, before God calls an end to it. It, It's not a coincidence that we see that same number at the beginning, the first book of the Bible, and again at the last book. I think you're right, yes. I think in Revelation also, Jesus calls out Pergamon, and he references throne of Satan. And many people believe that that was the altar of Zeus that was in Pergamon, which later made its way to the museum in Berlin, I believe. they, In fact, they constructed an entire museum to house the altar of Zeus, and, and it was used as a the inspiration for that giant platform where Hitler stood that's featured in the uh, Triumph of the Will. That right, was kind yes. of the backdrop. So is he suggesting then that Zeus was Satan? Yes, because uh, in the book of Matthew, there is uh, he's confronted by the Pharisees who declare that he is casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul, which means Baal the prince. And Jesus then turns it around and says, if Satan cast out demons by his own power, how will his, his house stand? Essentially, I'm paraphrasing because I don't have the verse in front of me, but essentially what he's doing is identifying Baal as Satan. Later, he identifies Zeus as Satan. The key here is that both of them occupied the same slot in the pantheon for their respective cultures. Baal, or Hadad, was the storm god, just as Zeus was the storm god for the Greeks. Both ascended to the kingship of the pantheon, replacing other deities before them. Baal replaced El, 
Zeus replace uh, Kronos. Uh, we see that pattern over and over. Uh, Thor and uh, Odin, uh, Jupiter and uh, uh, and Saturn. Uh, we see it in the, uh, the the Mesopotamian culture, the Babylon uh, Babylonian uh, pantheon, where Marduk replaced Enlil. Uh, over and over, it's the same pantheon, and we argue that uh, they're just the same deities by different names. The fact that there are 12 gods and goddesses or major deities of, of the Greek pantheon, was that their lame attempt to mirror the apostles, the, the, the number 12? That must be a significant number. That may be. There may be. Uh, th- that's not something we've studied specifically, but it may also relate to their understanding of the, uh, the number of months in a year, the uh, position of stars in the sky, the, the, uh, the Mazaroth, the, the zodiac. Uh, so it, it, now there used to be 13 signs in the Zodiac, but still it, it, it seems a little too coincidental to be coincidence. And, uh, like you, Richard, I am not a coincidence theorist. We've talked about giants and gods a little bit. Let's talk about dragons. And uh, you say there will be three dragons who will walk the earth in the last days. When will they appear? And are we talking literal dragons? Well, that's how they're described in the Bible. Uh, one has been with us the whole time, and that is Satan, who's described in Revelation chapter 12, is a uh, the red dragon with uh, seven heads, ten horns, and, and uh, wearing ten crowns. We we already mentioned Leviathan, or chaos. Uh, chaos is not just a state of disorder. It is a, an entity, and uh, there are a number of references to it in the Old Testament in particular. If you want uh, kids to really get excited about the Bible, just have them read chapter 41 of the book of Job which is a description of Leviathan, and see if they come away with the same conclusion as most Bible uh, commentators that, oh, that's just describing a crocodile. Really, one that breathes flame, apparently. <laughs> um, the other is uh, the uh, the Antichrist, which is the entity that, that emerges from the, uh, the sea in Revelation 13. And uh, it is a seven-headed entity. It looks really odd when we uh, read the uh, the description, it doesn't sound like, uh, say, smog of uh, of uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. It's uh, ten horns, seven heads. Um, the beast I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. But when you look at the way dragons were depicted in ancient Mesopotamia, that is exactly how dragons looked. Uh, and in fact, again, we go back to the uh, the depiction of the seven-headed serpent that had to be defeated by a warrior deity, usually as a uh, to, to depict the the way chaos was subdued, so that the natural order could be created. Um, this was an image that would have been very, very familiar to anyone in Mesopotamia, even in the time of John, when you know, 500 years after the collapse of Babylon, they still would have understood that this is the way dragons were depicted. They were sort of hybrid or chimeric creatures that incorporated sometimes uh, uh, like the griffin, uh, the the features of an eagle or a, a hawk, uh, along with a lion and perhaps a snake and perhaps a leopard. Uh, that's, that's what a dragon was in the ancient world. Ah, interesting. All right. So I want to get to the final uh, the battle of Armageddon and Gog and Magog, in the Hebrew Bible anyway, the, 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 so the supposed invader of, of Israel. Uh, now, does it refer to an, uh, an individual, uh, two individuals, or is it the land from which he or they come? Gog was the Old Testament Jewish conception of the great end times enemy of Israel, what we Christians would call the Antichrist. And uh, Jewish eschatology to this day believes that the war of Gog and Magog will be the final battle, uh, which will produce, uh, you know, which will be ended when Messiah arrives and puts an end to it. 
And in, in a sense, they're right, because that we equate with the Battle of Armageddon. And the clue is in the, the there's a gruesome, well, a couple of clues in Ezekiel chapter 39. Uh, one is that uh, at the end of this battle, God, who appears on the battlefield in that day, basically says, and they will know that uh, I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. The nations shall know that I am Yahweh, the Holy One in Israel. Israel. Now, the Holy One of Israel is a phrase that appears multiple times in the Old Testament, but there at the end of the war of Gog and Magog is the only time he says, I am the Holy One in Israel, meaning he's on the battlefield on that day. And then this follows, uh, or following this is a description of a really gruesome feast. This begins at verse 17 of Ezekiel 39, where uh, the birds and the beasts are called to assemble for a sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel, and they'll eat basically the uh, the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, et cetera, et cetera. The same thing is described in Revelation chapter 19, which is the end of the, uh, the, the battle of Armageddon. And like the war of Gog and Magog, which takes place on the mountains of Israel, and we, we get more specific, we believe that it's really in the, the valley across the river from Jericho is what uh, Ezekiel is describing. But the prize is Jerusalem. The term Armageddon was mistranslated by English speakers years ago, trying to transliterate the Greek, which John had to transliterate from older Hebrew. It's a phrase that we see in Isaiah chapter 14, which is the famous chapter that says, how art thou fallen, O Lucifer, son of the morning, uh, who wants to establish his mount of assembly in the sides of the north or the heights of the north or the uttermost north. Uh, that uh, phrase, mount of assembly, is har moed. Har Moed, the mount of the congregation or the mount of assembly. Well, God's mount of assembly is the temple mount in Jerusalem where Solomon built the temple. But when you transliterate from Greek or rather Hebrew into Greek, Moed has uh, got a character in it that looks like a reverse apostrophe called the Ayin. And there is no corresponding sound for the Ayin, which is a, it's a glottal stop. Um, there's no corresponding sound in Greek. So John did the best he could and used the uh, the Greek word or the Greek letter gamma to represent the ayin. So har moed became har magidon, and so English speakers assumed ah there's a gamma there that must be the Hebrew character gimel which we represent in English with the letter g. Well, that's where we get the idea that the final battle will take place at Megiddo, but the problem is it's the Mount of Megiddo and there's no mountain at Megiddo. Megiddo's on a plain. So the whole point is that this battle uh, will be fought at Jerusalem, the final battle, because it's all about who controls God's mount of assembly, his heart Moed. But Gog and Magog, is that referring to a foe from the north? Well, we, we would argue, or we, we argue that it's cosmic north rather than geographic north. Uh, it's sort of become received wisdom in uh, among prophecy circles that this refers to uh, Russia, that uh, the the heights of the north or the uttermost north in Ezekiel 38 and 39 must be Russia because when you draw a line north from Jerusalem, that's as uttermost north as you can get is, you know, Russia. But the phrase, again, going back to Isaiah 14, um, is Yarkate Tzaphon. And there are only three places in the Bible where that phrase is used. Yarkate Tzaphon, uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39, Isaiah 14 in describing the mountain sacred to Baal, 
or the, which because it refers to Mount Safon, a mountain that was well known in ancient Israel. Uh, it's in Turkey. Uh, today it's called Jebel al-Akra. It's on the Mediterranean coast just across the border from Syria, very close to ancient Antioch. But in the ancient world, everybody knew that that mountain is where Baal's palace was located. So, and of course, in, in the Greeks believed that that was where uh, Zeus defeated the chaos monster of the Greeks, Typhon, whose name was derived from Mount Saphon. This was important enough in Hebrew culture that uh, Saphon became the, uh, the, the word in Hebrew for the compass point north, whereas in other, uh, other Semitic languages, the, uh, the word for north is uh, Samal. But uh, because of the importance of Baal to the pagans around ancient Israel, uh, Tsephon, when they wanted to refer north, it's Tsephon. So this is really pointing to this mountain that was sacred to the chief god of the pagan neighbors of ancient Israel, both Canaanite and Greek. And so what we're talking about here is sort of a cosmic north, a supernatural enemy, which is what really Armageddon describes and what Gog and Magog is all about. Um, the p other people from that northern coalition that Ezekiel described, Meshach, Tubal, um, uh, Beth Togarma, and the Gomer, those were all groups of people that were in Anatolia, modern-day Turkey at that time. So the, the Russia will play a role in this, but I, I think the, the point that uh, most prophecy students and scholars overlook is this. When you look at the other members of this end times army against Israel, Persia, Kush, and Put. Persia, Iran, okay, you can see them going to war against Israel. Kush, okay, Ethiopia, Sudan, mm, not really an existential threat to Israel. And Put, which is Libya, is not even a functioning state at this point. Uh, but when Ezekiel wrote this in the 6th century BC, those nations were as far in those geographic directions as his readers would have known. What, what Ezekiel was saying, in other words, is that they're coming from the north, and especially supernatural north, this uh, reference to the, the mountain of Baal, from the east, the west, the south. They're coming from all four corners of the world. In other words, the whole world is coming against Israel for this final battle. And that's what you see in other Old Testament apocalyptic prophecies like uh, Zechariah chapter 14 and uh, uh, Joel chapters 2 and 3 and so forth. And this final battle, is this going to be visible or will it take place in the heavens or is it going to take place literally right there on the ground with foot soldiers for everyone to witness? We think yes to both. Uh, I, I think it, it will be both. Um, this was something we wrote about in the book Veneration. I also wrote about this in my previous book, Last Clash of the Titans. Ezekiel's puzzling reference in Ezekiel 39.11 to the travelers when God describes the end of this war, on that day I will give to Gog a place for burial in Israel, the valley of the travelers east of the sea, it will block the travelers. The travelers, we, we learned, was a term that was used by the pagans around ancient Israel for the spirits of the Rephaim, in other words, the demonic spirits of the Nephilim destroyed in the flood, who were worshipped and venerated by the pagans around ancient Israel, part of the cult of the dead, which, well, even influenced the early Christian church. Um, the Travelers was a, a uh, essentially referred to the demonic spirits of the, these entities. What we think this is referring to, what Ezekiel meant, is that these demonic spirits will be part of this battle. Um, the church, we think, will be out of here uh, through the rapture by this point. 
in uh, in the future. And uh, so what we've got is a demonically possessed army coming to do battle against Israel. Now, uh, obviously, this is somewhat speculative because it's not explicit in the biblical text, but it fits the evidence. It fits what the pagans around ancient Israel believed. And um, it, it helps us to understand some of these strange verses and references, uh, especially in Isaiah to cults of the dead that uh, scholars have only begun to acknowledge here within the last 40 years or so. So to answer your question short, uh, in, in, in just a couple of sentences, yes, we think it will be fought in the natural realm by literal armies coming to do battle at Jerusalem. And because of the supernatural way it ends with fire coming from heaven to destroy these armies, yes, we think it's going to be fought in the heavenlies as well. Giants, gods, and dragons exposing the fallen realm and the plot to ignite the final war of the ages. Sharon Gilbert and Derek Gilbert. Derek, thank you so much. How do we get a copy of the book? It's available wherever books are sold, uh, Amazon.com. Uh, most of the brick-and-mortar stores have it or can get it. And uh, uh, you can also go to the Skywatch TV store where it's part of a special offer that uh, because we're part of the uh, the publishing company, we can offer special deals that uh, Amazon can't match. SkywatchTVStore.com. Any one of those will do. All right. Derek, a great pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back in a few moments to tell you a little bit about an upcoming episode. Check out the huge selection of Strange Planet merchandise in my online shop. Go to strangeplanet.ca and click on Shop in the menu or find the link in the episode notes for this podcast. At my Strange Planet shop, you'll find unique men's, women's, unisex t-shirts and athletic shirts, leggings, tote bags, mugs, neck gaiters, and stickers and more, all emblazoned with amazing artwork designed exclusively for my Strange Planet shop by artist-illustrator Rick Forgus. If you're a fan of Strange Planet, why not show it off? Go to strangeplanet.ca and click on shop or go to the episode notes for this podcast and click on the link. It's a strange planet. Dress for it. Coming up next time, the ancient language of sacred sound and the acoustic science of the divine. Basically, if you want to see sound in pictorial form, you take a drum with you. And as my friend John Reed performed these experiments in the Great Pyramid about 25 years ago, he uh, actually used the uh, sarcophagus in the king's chamber as the drum. He put a speaker into that, and then he covered the whole thing with a membrane and scattered it with very, very fine dust. And then basically he threw the internal frequencies of the pyramid at that membrane. And what do we get? We get hieroglyphics. It was astonishing. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. An official message from Medicare. A new law is helping me save more money on prescription drug costs. Maybe you can save too. 
With Medicare's Extra Help program, my premium is zero and my out-of-pocket costs are low. Who should apply? Single people making less than $23,000 a year or married couples who make less than $31,000 a year. Even if you don't think you qualify, it pays to find out. Go to ssa.gov extra help. Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services.